0: Welcome to this Industry Seminar on Cybersecurity at RMIT. Um, This is the green brain, as we affectionately call it. Um, I'm Professor Heinz Schmidt, Director of E-Research at RMIT and uh, Software Engineering Professor in CSIT. Um, On behalf of the university, I would like to welcome everyone, and in particular, our distinguished speaker here today, uh, John Suffolk from uh, Huawei. As a global um, university of technology and design, RMIT has an international reputation for excellence in work-relevant education, in industry-oriented and applied research, and part of that is um, high-quality industry-engaged with the needs of industry and with global organizations like Huawei um, that makes RMIT different. As a company, Huawei has undergone quite a bit of amazing growth over its short history since 88, I think. And uh, no doubt John will talk a bit about that history and also about the technologies uh, more broadly uh, before focusing into the cyber security aspects. Um, Our partnership with Huawei includes the establishment of a high speed broadband training center whereby RMIT provides training for the latest in next generation technology and products. Before I introduce John, let me also um, quickly acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation uh, as the traditional owners of the land that the university is built on. Uh, RMIT University respectfully recognises elders both past and present. And now it's with great pleasure that I introduce our international guest speaker, John Suffolk. Um, He was appointed Huawei's Global Cybersecurity Officer in August 2011. Prior to joining Huawei, John was appointed Her Majesty's Government Chief Information Officer and also Senior Information Risk Officer in uh, June 2006, and previously Director General of Criminal Justice IT from Feb 2004. Uh, With over 25 years experience in IT and major transformation programs, John has worked in the engineering and financial service industry and has extensive experience in delivering IT-enabled change. Without further ado, let me hand over to John, who will talk about cybersecurity perspectives, building in, not bolting out. Over to you, John.
1: Now, as this is a very compact audience, I prefer to act as a moving target. If it's OK you you run standing behind the podium, I'd rather move around a little bit. So if my voice begins to dip, given all the talking I've been doing this week, just shout at me, and I will uh, go back to the podium. Uh, I'm actually not going to say a great deal about Huawei and our history and all that kind of like stuff. I will give you some statistics as we go on. <coughs> But uh, as I've done all the talking and the work in my seven days in Australia, and I just come from a week in China and I go back to China next week, I'm actually gonna get you to do some of the work. So uh, I'm gonna be uh, inviting three of you up here so I've got some questions and we are gonna provide advice to the rest of you in the audience on security. Uh, but let me just check something. Um, when I'm in an all-cost all body of learning, such as a university, I always just check with the audience are any of you in this room at this moment in time sitting there thinking that you're in the wrong meeting or you're not of average <laughs> intelligence or you're not very bright? Hands up if you're not very bright, um, that's one. So I'll play poker with you later. Uh, but generally speaking, I can pick on any of you minus one. Okay, so I'd like no for later. Well, I'm go- actually, I'm not going to use a great deal of slides. I used to bore for my country when I was the government's chief information officer. I'm gonna use a few slides to set the scene. Then we'll have a little bit of fun about our knowledge of security. I'm just gonna ask you know, our, our esteemed selection of three some very basic questions, and you can ask them as well, just to set the position of where we are in reality from a security perspective. And then what I'll do is I'll spend a little while telling you what we think cybersecurity is about and what you need to do as a vendor to really focus on cybersecurity. We're not saying our model is the right one, we're saying this is the way we do business. This is our definition of cybersecurity. And we won't go into the 20 or 30 definitions of cybersecurity that we could probably find. Okay, not a surprise to you in this. Everywhere we look and go, technology is fundamentally underpinning everything we do. Doesn't matter whether you're at home or in the plane or you're doing retail banking or buying retail stuff, electronic vending machines, RFID tags, everything we fundamentally do is underpinned by technology. And that is going to grow, it's going to continue to grow at a rapid rate. Even if you look at some of the things that the military do, they're using commercial RFID to tag all of the shipments around the world. And the RFID tag monitors the temperature of the cargo wherever it lands. If you've got perishable goods landing on a runway at 50-degree heat, they need to get it off the runway quickly. So technology is being used in every shape and form of our lives. And sadly, the one I do uh, uh, object to is anything internet or phone on a plane. For someone who spends two-thirds of his time traveling, the only time I can actually keep up to date with films and reading is on a plane knowing that my boss can email me or telephone me is not a good step forward as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and here are some of the examples. But as you know, um, uh, we're only at the beginning of this journey. Let me ask you the first question. Hands up if you think that the rate of technology in all its guises is continuing to accelerate, that we continue to invent and innovate with technology. Hands up if you think that's continuing to go. Okay, those could be bothered, almost every one of you. Hands up if you personally and your business is keeping up with the consequences of all of this innovation. That you understand the consequences of the technology that you're deploying or your business is deploying. Hands up if you're keeping up. I never get a hand unless it's an annoying presentation, someone scratching their head or something like this. So what we're saying is technology is going like this. Our knowledge is going like that. That gap is a risk, and it's an opportunity. It's a risk because if you don't know the consequences, then how do you mitigate the risk? It's an opportunity because there's probably lots more you can do with technology that you're not aware of. And I will hazard a simple guess: part of the financial crisis of 2008, and I was in, I ran financial services for many years was because we invented all of these derivative products, the most complex products you could ever think of, to make a little bit more margin on our products. We connected to all the exchanges around the world. We were trading money and all kinds of assets. But we did not know the domino effect and the consequences of the complexity of the technology and the products we were producing. So the domino began to fall. It just rippled around the world. I would hazard another guess. If we were a little bit more backward in financial services, and we couldn't use that complexity, maybe the products that we created would not have been so sophisticated, not so high risk, and actually the economic malaise that we've been through wouldn't have been as bad. So technology is enabling us to do things that we do not understand the consequences of. And I'm pleased, it's a small audience, challenge me, throw things at me. I genuinely don't mind. I've been had things thrown at me from bigger audiences than this. Okay, but all of this brilliance of technology, whether you look at healthcare, and the way we're doing body monitoring, if you look at the justice system, if you look at immigration, if you look at you know, uh, 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 the way we're changing education systems around the world, is fundamentally improving the citizens' lives. The world is smaller because of our use of technology, but there's a dark side. Every part, as we say in the UK, where there's muck, there's brass. And in an online world, there's a lot of muck. And there's a lot of money to be made by people using the digital economy for means they were never intended. Here are some examples. It doesn't matter whether you're a third party, you know, product provider like Adobe. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're an operating system like iOS or Microsoft. It doesn't matter whether you're on a, a mobile tablet or a big computer, you're at risk. The law is also you know, using another expression, you know, is not keeping up to date with the digital world. So it doesn't, if you look at the laws in one country, and everyone talks about the Patriot Act, it impacts business from a cyber security and a personal privacy and data protection in another country. And other countries have similar laws where if you're using the service of a particular company, which is governed or hosted in another country, your personal privacy actually may be breached because they are obliged legally to provide your information to another government in another country. That's not countries trying to do bad things. They're trying to protect their own environments, and that means the law has become confused. And the top right-hand box, it doesn't matter whether you're running classified or unclassified systems, everybody's at risk. And I often say to people, you can spend a million dollars to break my technology, or you can try and bribe me with a million dollars. And we should never forget that the insider threat is as big a threat as the technology threat. And sometimes it is easier to bribe someone than to do some stuff with malware, which I will go on to in a moment. Okay, internet is a marvellous thing for all kinds of strange things. Uh, All of us in this room, if we knew where to look, and I won't test you to see where you know to look, could buy any drug of our choice. We can buy arms of our choice. You can buy a hitman to kill the CEO of the company that we don't like. $250,000 was the last price I saw for a hitman. You can buy any identity that you want. You can buy any stolen credit cards that you want. There's a lot more that I haven't put on air, like live experiments on humans, for example. This website here is where you can buy malware. So if we put our hands in our pockets today, could we rustle up $250 US dollars? I'm not going to make a comment looking at you, but you know, <laughs> also like 250 bucks. Right, the 250 bucks, it's come down a little bit, it's 200 last time I checked. You could buy unique malware, a bit of software which is guaranteed to break into any computer. If it's caught by the top antivirus vendors, you get your money back. And Or you could have new unique malware. Which is guaranteed not to be caught by the antivirus vendors and the filers. And by the way, we'll give you twenty-four hour telephone support. Who says crime doesn't pay? Now, what do you reckon we can get for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, or two and a half million, or twenty-five million? So the reality is, we have built all of this technology, technology that we don't fully understand, and there's an other side of it, the dark side that fundamentally enables you to do whatever you want to do. Now, the question for me is quite simply this. What is going to change in the world going forward to change this position? Because if nothing changes, you, certainly not me, will be sitting here in 10 years' time saying, so, what do we do about cybersecurity? Here you go, here's a question, another question for you. What is the difference between Companies selling zero-day exploits, undeclared faults in a program that enable you to break someone's systems, and 125 millilitres of toothpaste. What is the difference between those things from a legal perspective? You know the answer. I've told you eight times. The 125 millilitre of toothpaste is illegal. You can't take it on a plane take a hundred mil, you can't take hundred and twenty-five mil. And all this is trying to illustrate that we're more comfortable in the world of tangible things, cars, curves, lights, electrical sockets. So these doors here, under engineering, are designed to be a certain size, be opened in a certain time, so the amount of, maximum amount of people in this room can get out of this room in a certain amount of time for health and safety. We're very comfortable in the very tangible world. The moment you go cyber, we don't know what's right or wrong. And I'll just ask you this, that's a valid article by Forbes. And you just search for um, zero-day hacking the price, and you'll come up. The biggest buyers of zero-day attacks are governments around the world, or their agencies. Your next question, not doing very well on the homework so far. Um, why would a government want to buy a zero day export? Influx like Duxnet. Sorry? Influx like Stuxnet. Could well be. You said that, not me. It's probably an NSA though. Um Yeah, why would they do it? Is it for charity? Is it to take it off the market? Is it to work with the vendors where that exploit is? Or is it to make use of the exploit? You can draw your own conclusions in terms of. It. Governments have always done things to each other. Just it happens in the digital world, they can do it in a different way. And you've mentioned Stuxnet and the intelligence and the capability that is behind Stuxnet. Okay, the world is also global. Uh, I don't see many laptops going here at the moment, which is unusual. I don't see many tablets going, which is unusual. If you pick up an average laptop, there's some research done by the Brookings Institute. It says when you broke it up, the components in that laptop came from 18 different countries. So when people look at Huawei and a Huawei badge on a billet kit, your natural assumption is that Chinese equipment in that box. Right, next question. You can guess at this, by the way. What percentage of Huawei's components are not made by Huawei in its average billet kit? Hazard a guess. What percentage of components are not made by Huawei? 80 percent. Sorry? 80 percent. 80? 90. 90? It's hardly worth putting our label Mm -hmm. on the (laughs) 90s. 70 percent. So when you look at someone's label, you naturally think Chinese equipment coming from China. Guess where the biggest? Guess the country where the the biggest number of components come from is Huawei equipment. Europe. America. 32%. So what's what is an American company now, or a European company, or an Australian company, or a Chinese company? So the reality is, all of our equipment comes from a global supply chain. So I'm, you know, we spent 6.6 billion US dollars last year buying from over a thousand American companies components to go into equipment. Those supplies themselves have their global supply chain. Global supply chain layering on global supply chain layering on global supply chain. Now, if you're all interested in security, and I asked earlier, are you in the right meeting for here, so the answer must be yes. How are you going to secure that? You must be interested in this. How are you going to secure everyone's supply chain? Because, actually, only 30% in our equipment is hardware. I'm talking happily about the 30%. What do I do with the 70%? And it's not just hardware. Everybody uses open source, everybody uses third <coughs> party software, so it's like in the software market as well. So when you're looking at security, it isn't just about the bits and bytes of technology. It's about other people's global supply chains. It's about other people's components. It's a bit like you buying a car which has, I don't know, pick a name, Ford on it. All the bits have come from other countries, you'd really want to know the brakes for it. So what it might have a forward name on, it might be their supply chain, They might be buying from around the world. They have to make sure that every component works as it should work. The brake to do what it says on the tin. they stop people crashing into the car in front or something. And also, the world is reliant on a global supply chain. All the major tech vendors have bases in China, they have bases around the world. To talk about research, we talked about research journey. If you pick any one single city like Chengdu, tier one city, Nine months ago, 189 of the Fortune 500 were doing their research, their pure research, their applied research in Chengdu. Nine months later, it's 250 of all these 500 companies. Probably in a year's time, 300 or 350. So the reality is, every one of us in this room, all the companies we're associated with, goes where the brains are. So if the brains are here in Melbourne. We come here because we want the talent. We then use the ecosystem around this area because the brains filter out to companies that create around universities. So companies are brilliant at moving their logistics and their organisation to where the talent is. Just cast your mind back 20 or 30 years, lots of us around the world used India for call centre. Brilliant education systems, labour cost was cheap, infrastructure was good. That then spawned you know, you know, world-class software engineering companies. And now we move planes around the world. So Brazil's a you know, big center for building planes. You look at the old Eastern Bloc. They are fabulous. Some people speak four languages. They're well-educated. You see lots of support environments around there. The world goes where the talent is. And that is true from everything. So the issue for me is when people say, John, you must secure Huawei, I can't think just 30% Huawei. I have to think, where are we around the world? Where am I buying components from? Where what supplies am I using and what do they do? So we've gone global as well. Simple chart, not. Um, Talking about global. If I buy a product from you, I want to make sure that you've not fiddled with it. How do I know a component has not been tainted or substituted? How do I know someone driving a big white lorry full of chips or components from Huawei to go down and keep the equipment? Hasn't been changed or tampered. How do I make sure some software I bought from somebody else doesn't have a backdoor? How do I make sure when I deliver it to your to your customer base, your distribution hub, you don't have people in there who are taking bribes to do various things? Please let me into the computer room because I want to do something with your equipment. So when you look at this kind of model from material supplies to product designs to transportation to hubs to customers to R&D. All of that is cyber security. The debate you often default to is hacking, penetration, bits and bytes, more than that, a lot more than that. Right. shall we get on to our little test? Uh, yeah, OK, before we go on to that. Right, three volunteers, please. I promise I will be gentle. If the cricket was on, you'd have no chance, but we're not there yet. So three volunteers, we all right. We're going to help everybody else buy a laptop. Come on. You don't be shy. One. Two more. Two. Thank you. Come. Come on. One more.
0: Yes, please. Right.
1: Very simple. This is very, 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 very simple. What I want to do is I've talked all about this cybersecurity malarkey. We've talked all about the world. We've talked all about the way technology is being used, now I want to bring us back to Earth. And our three great colleagues here are going to advise all of us on how we buy a laptop and how we secure it. Okay? And I'm going to be the average consumer in the street who, where technology is not my first love. I don't know about all this security stuff, I read all this stuff in the press, and uh, I just want to buy a laptop for my son because he's going to university and I can't trust him with my money because he'll go and splashing on booze and wing. <laughs> so I kind of need to go and buy this myself. Is that alright? So you're going to help me work out what I need to do from a security of a laptop and what I need to buy. Is that alright? You okay with that? Okay, so I've gone to this store and I see all of these laptops and they're all shiny and beautiful and red and all this techy stuff so i would buy on price on budget which laptop should i choose as the safest first of all is there anything on these laptops that will tell me pick me i'm safe i kind of turn it over and i see conforms to electrical standards but i don't see any security stuff so which how do i know which laptop to buy first of all which one's the safest buy Buy an apple. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> buy an apple. Popularity. Buy the most, the most popular. Yes. Trusted brand. Right. Which is a trusted brand? Apple, whatever you do. <laughs> <you> don't say that. <laughs> You're going to go and sit back uh, uh. uh, oh, oh. down. you for HP? Yeah. OK, so we've got buy an apple buy a trusted brand and do something else. OK, uh, so basically, there's not a single answer. Mm-hmm. Right, OK. So I can buy anyone, really. Yes? You're not saying shoes, sure it, it, it depends on, on your, your uh, for use of the I'm just going to. My, my son's just going to be looking at porn, gambling, <laughs> and maybe occasionally doing a bit of work. No, they tend to go to internet websites. <laughs> <laughs> Don't spend so much money on that. Yeah, well, <laughs> he he's probably. i probably going to. He's probably sell it on eBay later. But, so kind. Of, so just basics. Don't get too excited about a big workstation that can launch a rocket yeah, or so something. The next thing would be the budget. Mm. Uh, thousand dollars. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah. Okay. So right. So which one? So can't pick anyone. It's Come <laughs> to the chase, the <laughs> apple. Which <laughs> <laughs> <Ouch, laughs> Right. right so I've just bought a laptop now. I've Got the box. It's a beautiful box. Yes. And uh, I can see. Um, don't use a hammer on it. You know, because it's uh, this way up. Electrical stuff. Nothing about securities. I'm, I assume I can just take it out, plug it in, I'm ready to go. Is that that fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, okay now. Took out the box, plugged it in, powered it up. Is it safe? No. Need no. software. <laughs> okay. Where does it tell me that I need software and stuff to be safe? I don't forget. I don't know about this stuff. Where does it tell me? Do <laughs> you think SARS <laughs> so is really that <laughs> interesting to give you any advice rather than just take your money? Well selling more things. Right, okay, so I'm at home. He hasn't told me anything. So I've it on now, and I, I kind like of want to look at a bit of dodgy stuff myself. Am I safe? And you're saying no. Right, so I'm going to buy software. Where do I find out where this software is and what I've got to buy? The government has roads, the have... I don't trust government. <laughs> As an ex-government boy, I should say things like that. <laughs> so where does it tell me? I've just opened the box. It's so like i get into my car, it doesn't say I've got to have brakes. So I've got to buy software. So what software are we going to buy? Antivirus. Antivirus, anything else? Firewall. Firewall, don't it up here, firewall. <laughs> <laughs> antivirus, right, fabulous, antivirus. Which is the best antivirus? Which is the best, not which is the cheapest? Which is the best antivirus? They talk highly of not, in any way. What does, is, how do I measure talk highly of versus does it stop nastiness? Just Google it, and you give you the least of the best antivirus right. up there on the So I've heard about this website, which is like, compare the X, which yes, is bullshit. Right. You know, it just puts their <laughs> first thing up So isn't there an international standard for antivirus I like never: It should have a standard. But is there a standard I can go and look at? So what you're saying is I buy something which gives me no instructions on security, I plug it in, but I've got to buy other things. Mm-hmm. You're telling me to buy antivirus, but you don't know which one I should buy. Mm-hmm. But if I just pick one, you know, whatever, a free one, because you know mm-hmm. don't spend too much money on my son, mm-hmm. what else do I do? Am I now secure? Um, you used to be antivirus software from Windows? Okay, so I've put antivirus on. I've just picked one because I couldn't find a standard. Am I safe? No. Okay, it's getting long. Why am I not safe? I've done everything you've told me to do. What am I going to do now? I can spend $250 on it. Okay, Okay, how do I stop that then? I thought that was antivirus. So I'm never going to be safe. Sorry? There's no such thing. So where does it say that? If it says, the car's brakes might work sometime, there's no guarantee of success, (laughs) do we have that in buying technology for the average consumer in the
0: street?
1: Why? How long has a PC been in the market? Not anyone. I think
0: as far as as technology developed, on the other side of the coin you've got all these guys with nothing to do with mess up technology. You mean no (laughs) girlfriends? So it's like a catch-22. You have to get this or the other. So you can keep waiting for the come couple
1: We could continue this for hours, couldn't we? Yeah. What we're trying to say here we are from the basics of technology, and we're saying our good friends here are saying, "Well, you know, buy an Apple. Well, ho ho ho." <laughs> um, as good as they are, they're still at targets. We don't really give any advice. We don't really have any standards. We don't know which is the best firewall and antivirus. When we've done all of that, we're still not quite sure whether we're safe or not safe. So. That is the harsh reality. And of course, um, I could go on and ask you about updates, and do I need to update and what's an update, and which ones do I like and don't like. The reality is, and some of this is what you're talking about, the technology is moving faster than the vendors can put security Mm -hmm. in. So thank our experts here. (laughs) But don't we, shouldn't we all feel a little bit embarrassed that here we are, you know, some 30 years after the mass production of PCs in business, we can't answer the basic questions? We can do it on almost anything else in life. But in technology, we struggle to say, this is what good looks like. And the reality is, it, this is you know, whilst I, I say I'm buying as an average consumer. It might give the wrong impression that businesses are a lot more sophisticated. Because if I said to a business, tell me the best antivirus, tell me the best firewall. tell me what typical penetration rates or stop rates you would typically get on a product. And the answer would be the same. Often it's a personal view. I think X is better than Y. I prefer Z over A. There are no international standards. And the reality is, if you're a bad guy and you can spend 250 bucks, or you can come in via the best browser. I didn't ask you the question because then we're all getting to the idea of this. What is the safest internet browser? We don't know. And there are differences. But it's not about, in essence, is A better than B? It's about people beginning to drive the standards up on every part of technology that we do. So that's the harsh reality. So, what I'm going to do, on, I'm not going to spend a great deal more time in terms of where we are and spend a little bit of time about how we, at Huawei, address cybersecurity. Because there isn't one model, there isn't one methodology, there isn't one way of doing this. So every company has to do what it thinks is right. Now a little bit about Huawei. Um, uh, We operate in over 140 countries. We have 150,000 people speaking over 154 languages. Our technology supports about 3 billion of the planet's 7 billion population in some shape or form. We're, everything, we're into everything from cloud computing, to green data centers, to telecommunications infrastructure, to phones, tablets, and anything else you can think of. We operate in the most excre- extremes of the world. You know, the most fur- furthest northern you know, base station is a Huawei one. And if we took you to our testing centers, you can see the way we freeze it down to minus 80. We boil it to plus 50 and 60. We throw water and sand and radiation, because we also work in the hottest climates of the world. We also, because of where we operate in, we also need to protect against elephants scratching their backside on the equipment. So we've learned how to basically protect equipment. We've learned how to use renewable energy, because in many parts of the world, there is no electricity. So you have to use generators, wind, and solar. And therefore, how do you handle the variability? So if you think about all this equipment around the world, whether it's in your hands, in your home, or in your data centers, a lot of it is exposed. And our model is quite simply this. Just as you can't bolt quality onto a product, you build a product and add a bit of quality on, you can't bolt cybersecurity onto a product either. You can't say build product and now add security on. Everything you do has to be embedded from the law, from your analysis of the legal systems, to the way you employ and vet people, to the way you deal with your suppliers, and everything else. And the reason why it has to be built is you will have bought products from the same company. Sometimes you go to a company and the service is really good and the product is really good. The next time you go to the company, the product and the service isn't quite the same. That gives you an indication of the repeatability of the process, the repeatability of the service. If you're getting a lot of variability, it says to you it's not built in. It's not embedded into everyone's job in an organisation. And from a security as it is with cars, you can't on some cars have good brakes, and on another car you buy the same market with bad brakes. You've got to have this manufacturing, repeatability, model in terms of everything that you do. Righty, righty, I think I'm probably going to stop on this slide. I'm going to open it up, but I'm going to spend a bit of time on this. This is our process model. We were fortunate with our founder, uh, Mr. Rand, who said, look, if you're going to operate in 140 countries and continuing to grow, you really need to make sure that your processes, the way you run the business, is consistent around the world. Because, of course, some of our customers, they themselves might operate in 100 different countries. And they don't want to have different policies and procedures and standards in each country in which they're operating in. So we're very process orientated. From the time when you ask us to build something like a microwave or a data center, law requirement, through to, in essence, the product is being closed down, end of life. Everything is a process, from the way we recruit people to the way we do R&D, manufacturing, supply chain. And these are the core processes. MM, you know, market management, IPD, integrated product development, R&D. Lead to cash, how we sell. If we're gonna sell you something, it'd be quite good if you made it. So really understanding what the customer's requirements are can be delivered, is a process. You know, integrated supply chain. If I need to build a product, I need to make sure I've got the components coming in from around the world, that is be integrated. Issue to resolution, you find the fault, what's my issue to resolution process? And it goes on and on and on. But the important thing here, as you can see, is from a security perspective, I don't have, you don't see a security process on that. Security isn't the bottom. So I'll give you an example. I've talked before that for a high-tech component we have about 1,000 suppliers around the world. 32% coming from American uh, companies. So we have a supplier management system, which in essence says to those suppliers, look, the 30% of we can protect. But that's 70%. Unprotected in some shape or form. It's not our policies and procedures now, it's a supplier's policies and procedures. So I now need to work with a thousand suppliers to say to them, what is your process if you find a vulnerability in your components or your software? Will you tell us? Because if you don't tell us, how can I stop it somewhere else? How do we know where you're buying your components from and are they being tampered with? So what's the protection around your building? What's the protection around your manufacturing? If you've got people burning software onto a chip, are those vetted roles? Or can I bring my mate in and he put his own software in because no one checks it? So all this is about working with a supplier to understand the product or component they're selling you and ask them the same questions that you would ask me as the Huawei badge owner in terms of what are you doing on security of the product? you now need to sign cybersecurity agreements with all of your suppliers? To do the vetting, to do the policy procedures, to tell you when they get a vulnerability. So it's not just far away now, it's the ecosystem. Let's talk about uh, software engineering, uh, where most people focus on from a a threat perspective. Right, so our good friend here has written this code. marvelous bit of code that's gonna run the infrastructure for Australia. Do you think we should let him sign his own homework? I've done great code. I'm now going to make it live. Good way of doing security? I don't know. No, the death, wasn't it? So how do you work out the scope of a software engineer in terms of the R&D process? The way Huawei does it is this: we give you a system or some code to write. You know, you're a project team here. It's not untypical for us to have a thousand people on a project. In. You know, I think we've got 10,000 people on cloud computing, for example. We've got 70,000 people in R&D alone. 1,200 PhDs in 19 research centers around the world. So you write some code. We don't even allow you to compile. But if you think about threats, we've got compilers coming in, third-party tools, open source software, just to make up a system. So we have a build center sitting in the middle where you basically said, Hi, I'm John, here's my code. And he says, Ah, John, you're working on Project X. We know all the open source, we know all the compilers, we know the version numbers, and we dynamically create a compilation which you never touch and have no control over. Because we don't want you to be able to tamper with it. Also, in this build center, which is doing it for the whole company, by the way, it's also using the latest versions of the tools. As you know, we all use operating systems, whether it be, you know, open source, Linux-based stuff, or whether it be, you know, Microsoft or iOS and some interpretive OSs in terms of embedded systems. All of those can have a vulnerability. So how do I know we're using the right patch version? How do I know we've solved or implemented all of the changes to make it safe? If you are making this decision, and I've got 70,000 people doing this, I have 70,000 changes of it being messed up. It's all automated. It brings in all the right tools, all the right patch versions. Automatically compiles everything, and then we say we want instant feedback to you. Apart from your coding errors, we come over here and we say, right, we're now going to run all of the standard security tools around the world and scan your code for you know all of the standard OWASP stuff, all the standard vulnerability. use a number of commercial tools, not one, to give you instant feedback on security, but also give us instant feedback how good your coding is. So let's say we've right signed this off now. Should he implement his own or say sign off his own code? I think someone shook their head back saying no. So who signs off your code? You've got to be looking at hardware engineers, software engineers, you've got to be looking at support engineers. So a different team of people will look at your code, look at all the automated testing, look at all the systems testing, and we then need to say, if you sign this off, you are making sure you've validated all these things a different team of people sign off that software. Now I've got some code. So to go into manufacturing. How do you make sure that what we've signed off here ends up in manufacturing before it's burnt onto a chip or burnt onto a disc? You've got to make sure that, bless you, you don't tamper it with your own software. So how do I begin to lock every part of the chain to make sure no one can inject something? It then hits manufacturing. Manufacturing says, this software is for this customer. Would it surprise you if I said, customers do not have the same configurations around the world in the same world? No. Everything tends to be reasonably unique from a configuration where the base properties is identical. But the customer wants to know that I have bought on my thousand suppliers over here, the right components. that are coming by the right supply chain. They've hit the right product lines, the, the robotics and everything else, is plucking up the right chips and components. All the automated robotic testing is being done in terms of they performing the way they are. When you look at the chips and components, they have visually the right issue. And then we're loading on the right software for that customer, for that machine. And then I've now got a packaged up machine, what do I do with it? I have to move it to a secure cage to make sure no one is tampering with the end product if we know this is coming to this university and we wanted to basically do something with this university, I know the kit coming here, I can tamper with that. It so now it needs to be locked. But I have to put it on a wagon to get to Australia. So who, what supplier should we use? You know, white man in a van? Get this from, you know, wherever the manufacturing is to Melbourne, please. White man in a van turns up it on the back. You can't do that. So you have to choose global logistical companies who themselves work to the high standard. There are some international laws on counter-terrorism and injection, which you have to uh, apply on some of this. But your ability to say the equipment that we've come out of the cage here has ended on logistics, has ended on a seaport or air side, has landed in the country, and the exact equipment has turned up at the supplier's distribution point. where it's going to be installed, may not be. And actually, nothing has happened in the meantime. So cyber security is more than the bits and bytes. It's the way you separate the roles out. It's the way you take a holistic view of all the components. It's the way you think about how you install and get this stuff. All right, it's now been installed. So who should we allow into the server rooms of all of our customers to install this? How should we control it? It's now often no longer in our control, it's the customer's control. Should we allow everybody into the machine room? No, of course not. That's not our control. The customer can do what he or she wishes to do. So how do you know your equipment is going to be installed well? Right? How do you know it's not been tampered? How do we know in a positive way that someone hasn't offered a million dollars to one of our engineers when they're installing big infrastructure to add something unpleasant into that service? How do you know? Can this service engineer themselves or the installation engineer, plug in their, lap, their own laptop or a work laptop and they downloaded different software to misconfigure what's going on. How do you know? And if you don't know, you're not doing a good enough job on security. So we don't allow, we block everything on laptops. Only certain laptops can be plugged into certain configurations. You have no ability to have any maintenance tools on your, your engineer's laptops, because that has to be explicitly granted permission from the customer. Let's assume it's all been installed right now. Again, simple question. Do you think every engineer works for the same customer in the same country all their life? No. So you move people around from customers and you move people around in countries. Is the law on personal privacy and data protection the same in every country? No. So if you're doing engineering in South Africa, and I now move you to Germany, if I teach you the rules and regulations of data protection, personal privacy, all kinds of other intercept laws, what the customer wants, whose fault is it if they copy forward what they did in South Africa and Germany, whose fault? Your fault or my fault? My fault. So even when you're moving people around, you need to consider where you're moving them from, where you're to, because the law is different. The rules and regulations are different. So again, cybersecurity is not just about bits and bytes. It's about understanding the law. So when you hear a vendor saying our equipment is legally compliant around the world, how would they know unless they've examined the law in every country around the world? Put your hands up if you think the personal privacy and data protection laws in Australia are very clear and cannot be misinterpreted. (laughs) Precisely. when you're looking from a service perspective, you're also considering the legal aspects. You're considering the exposure of your people and the exposure of your customers. So here we are. We've taken a very simple concept of cybersecurity. We've talked about the global nature of technology. We've talked about global supply chains. We've talked about how there is a dark side and we can do broadly and much what we want to do if you're that way inclined. We've brought you back down to earth and said our basic knowledge of security on buying something as simple as a laptop isn't perhaps as good as it should be. And we've kind of gone through the whole process that you need to go through from a repeatability, from everything the way you sell, the way you service, the way you code, the way you compile, the way you deal with suppliers, the way you do manufacturing, the way you service, etc. That's to us cyber security. It isn't about the latest threat. It isn't about the latest Stuxnet or the latest Flame or the latest anything, because you know, re- any research report. They're now talking. Of, I think it's last time I read, 12 new malwares are being invented every second of every day. With the best will in the world, you can spin a lot of wheels chasing the next twelve or the next one. That is not what cybersecurity is about. Cybersecurity is about taking a holistic approach to every part of the business. I'm trying to take out the clutch of everything, accepting there is no guarantee of success. But if I offer someone a million dollars, resource or risk, they will take the money and do harm. And I've never been surprised by the stupidity of man to do something wrong. I can automate, I can put robotics in, I can do automated testing, but at some point there is a link in the chain, either from a third party, or one of your own people, or just a bad coding practice or a dodgy chip, or a dodgy wagon which you have protecting it. So the final thing, then I'll stop and take questions, is you are now all press in this order. No, you're all press, okay? Let's make this fun. You're all customers. And these kind of people over here have just come up with an implication, a headline which says, um, major vulnerability found in common open source products all of you customers are exposed to lose all of your customer data, regulators involved. So, press and now, having a go at you. Common open source, and you're using us as a vendor. How long are you as customers going to give me to tell you um, whether I use that open source component and whether it's in your equipment? How long would you give me? Uh, two months, uh, six months, two weeks, what would what you? How long would you say, "Hey, look, ignore these pressy people over here. They're always coming up with emotive headlines. This is not an urgency, it's urgent. How long would you give them? minute. Sorry? Got a minute. You're a presser <laughs> yeah. so, one. your customers, what do you think would, would you say to your vendor, I need this information, it's quick and slow, what? Sorry? It ain't going to be two months, is it? Because they'll be crucified. So think about this. How would I know where that open source component is? Where would I know where that third party component is? Where would I know where that chip is? How would <laughs> I find out? I just told you we use a thousand suppliers. We service people in 140 countries. We serve, you know, 3 billion and a right. And now you want me to give you an instant answer. That implies something called traceability. <clears throat> so I have to be able to trace any component from any supplier in any location in the world taking any route to get into any equipment and then be delivered to any customer anywhere in the world. And you're giving me now to do it. Well, we can trace 96% of all components in exactly that way. The only things we go and trace are batteries, cabinets and cables. You might better strangle someone with the cables and it's not really going to be a cyber threat. <laughs> okay, so how do I know where this software is? How do I know that it is open source? How do I know that we haven't tampered with it? How do I know who's done it? How do I know who signed it off? How do I know what products it is? How do I know whether we've patched them all because we found it? from the press aren't alive for that. It implies that any bit of software that we produce, if you ask us to do something on microwave, we call that a law requirement. It's done in market management at the top left hand. We can trace exactly the route that requirement goes to, you know, raw requirements, to you know, functional design, systems design, coding, compilation, you know, quality sign off implementation, going into the manufacturing, going on the board. So I can trace everything all the way through the process, who's touched it, who hasn't touched it, the changes in the code, all the test results, all the compilations, goes into my manufacturing systems. I can see who's bought this product and where it's been turned I can do it all the way back. If you say, I found a problem, this is a bigger problem, I can take what you're doing, look it all the way back and trace it all the way back to your, your requirements. Because if I can't, you will crucify this. You crucify these, they crucify me. So again, when you look at cyber security, it isn't just about the bits and bytes, it's how you respond to an event. Because every single one of us in this room, when we're in the security of technology, have some kind of event that we have to recover from. So I'm going to start there. i have to take questions. I'll try to give you a quick run round in terms of security and end-to-end processes, and all the things that you need to consider. And my final message is, you know, this is not going to stop from the adoption of technology. It is not going to stop from the issues of cybersecurity. So unless you are building in and not bolting up, you will not be able to cope with this right school. So thank you very
0: much. We have time for some questions, please. Questions or comments? Anyone? Uh, well, if we go to the heart of the uh, issue with uh, uh, Steve Conroy's banning of the point of view, the NBN and the same issues with the United States, you've outlined a very uh, Structured
1: case as to why that was was maybe not such a sensible decision. What? How do you position the Hawaii in terms of being able to overcome the politics as well as the actuality of cyber security? Well, I think you're right. I think we have articulated how we do it, and I said, and I've been very honest. I'm not saying what we do is right. If some if people come up with a better model, we adopt the better model. That's point number one. Let's be very very clear about this because if, if there was a global answer, it would all be adopted you also know from a, a politics perspective, you know, as an individual company, our ability to influence well, politics, predominantly between America and China, is pretty non-existent. And I often say that you know we're collateral damage, you know we're piggy in the middle. And the reality is, you know, stuff that's going on um, from a political perspective, you know, we're, we're just on the edge of that. But what I would say is this: part of the challenge that we all face is that cybersecurity is a very, very broad issue. But often people making policy decisions actually are, are not broad. It's not a criticism, you know, it's very hard to find in the world that who's an expert on software engineering, an expert on you know, hardware and manufacturing, an expert on service, an expert on HR law. It's very rare that you find that, so you tend to find quite narrow policy coming out. So part of our role is to help educate people to the global nature of the issue because it takes global solutions. It's also about helping people understand what questions to ask the policy makers and the politicians in terms of, are we really fundamentally addressing the issue? So as you know, our market share in America is close to 0%. So no Huawei equipment is used in the big infrastructures of America. Has that stopped America being attacked and bridged? No. So this is not a Huawei issue. It comes back to the global issue. So if the outcome was to protect America, it hasn't protected America. Now again, my belief is, and, I, and I've saw things on all walk of life, not just security, uh, it sometimes takes a year or so for the seeds to sow in people's minds and what the real problems are and therefore what the real policy response will be. It is my job, it's Huawei's job to help people understand us, to understand modern China, to understand the global nature and what we're doing. That's the best we can do. I think we have to be patient. I think we have to be honest and open with each other in terms of what problems we're trying to solve here. Yeah. We need to accept that politics is politics, and if it's not, why well, are be something else in five years' time. And we will just kind of, like, you know, call to this transitional moves, so everyone gets used to the way the world is changing. I've, I've been in politics, I've been in government for eight years, serving three prime ministers. But what I will say this in their defense. the policy nature of governments around the world today is a hell of a lot more complex than it was three years ago and 10 years ago. when you're making a decision on cybersecurity, you're not just making a decision on cybersecurity. You're making a decision on your health policy, your education policy, your economic policy in terms of inward investment or growing your ecosystem for every kind of industry. And the more you open yourself up to business or the more you close yourself off to business, impacts you in terms of a whole host of other policies. So every government around the world, and I spent two thirds of my life traveling in some shape or form, I've tried to balance all the policies of which cyber securities are involved. I think what we have to be uh, is patient. I think we have to help people understand. Uh, we have to make the big boys and girls uh, work together, not digitally fight.
0: Other questions or comments? John, in the absence of another question.
1: Oh, there was one. One more. Um, John, you identified a lot of uh, the different Supply chain, process chain, in regards to it, and there's different security risks along that way. Like, what's the matchup between the level of risk and how the corporates, and governments, and police are uh, matching those type of things as to where their the priorities, their funding? Yeah, very good question. Uh, governments around the world, law enforcement agencies around the world, are getting much, much better aligning their resources to chase the really bad guys. You know, serious organised crime, the drug runners the people traffickers, people doing serious harm to economies They're doing much, much better. But as you know, the whole issue in terms of uh, attribution of where the issue is is quite complex, and certainly not, you know, But they're getting much better. You know, you look at all of the crime agencies, the security agencies. They've got their networks and their information sharing, et so that's pretty good. Most governments, unless you're in the really high-end classified stuff, because we don't operate, we operate from the old classified space. They don't worry so much about the supply chain. Only because you can do infiltration, you can substitute products. Maybe it's a swap board X, very expensive sell on eBay, shoving a cheaper and therefore, you know, my profit is a difference between the two. You can do that, but the big money is made really by infiltrating systems to steal information, to see what's going on in terms of mergers and acquisitions, see what products and to be honest, you don't need to do supply chain infiltration. I just send you a phishing email and you click on the link. It comes back to that $250 you know, scenario. That is so very, very hard to stop, isn't it? And the only way you can do this stuff is by education and by being really good on the hygiene of your technology. Here, I will absolutely, as I always do, applaud defense signals in Australia. They've come up with their top four and top 35 mitigating strategies. If you do the top four, it stops at 85% of the threats. And I, would, I chastised the Australian government in the media a year ago saying, but brilliant work, proven to work, you don't mandate it. So stop moaning. Now it's mandated. Because you can't say, I've got the solution, but I'm going to ignore it. And then I'm going to complain, that I'm being You can't have it both ways. But they've done great, great work. So there are things that we can do, and that's what we should focus
0: much of our energy on. I'm being pressured. here. i have got to go. John, just more quick, one more question. You talked a bit about, um traceability in, in logistics, uh, the supply chain, but also in the more traditional systems engineering process, product yes. lines, dependencies across yep. supplier boundaries. Um, we understand the need, I guess, but uh, what is Huawei actually doing? Would you be able to draw on a big database where you have some of these, or all of these, or yes. many of these dependencies, yes. and come up with an answer within hours? Yes. Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> We have to.
1: The, the, the one wonderful thing about Huawei, because we're our uh, heritage Chinese and it was all Chinese, red flag, etc., is we are probably the most poked product audited inspected reviewed company in the world. So if I come out here and say to you, hey, traceability, I know governments around the world and customers have reviewed and in, and, and actually tested that out. So everything I say to you, we say to you, "Don't." It's an, it's an intelligence-based model known as ABC. Assume nothing, believe no one, so don't believe me, and check everything. So I say, don't believe me, come and check. So yes, we do traceability of software, we do traceability of third parts, we do traceability of all of our stuff. And the interesting thing is from a database, we showed this to one government, and they said, uh, good customers. They said, so right, so you have on this database, every component, every product of every customer, any the world." And the customer's saying, you have more knowledge of what we have than we do. The government says that database is now a security system so much. You I can pick on, a, <laughs> on a, a customer and know everything they've ever been sold and where it's been distributed to, not
0: necessarily installed anywhere in the world. So when you do this, you can create a of security issues. And allow me just another very brief question, hopefully with a similarly brief answer. Mm-hmm. Um, we do quite a bit of research in dependability. I see a few people mm-hmm. around here who uh, work on reliability and, and mm-hmm. similar aspects in software mm-hmm. and, and so forth and systems. Now. Uh, in the dependability space, there's quite a um, well. It's not perfect, but there's so quite a, a standardisation and a, an approach and a methodic way of doing of doing things. Mm-hmm. Now, why is security so far from that?
1: Um, when you buy a product, and all the things you look at a product, doesn't matter whether it's a washing machine or anything like that, but normally tech, is security at the top end of your buying criteria. Is it looks, brand, price, functionality? Security can't, just doesn't end up on the buying thing. So the reason why in essence people, in my opinion, haven't focused on security is because governments don't demand it, big enterprises don't demand it, and you don't. So why would I invest? Would I, would I invest in something that no one is really demanding? Will I invest in R&D? Will I invest in marketing? And I've been very explicit and I'd spoken this week. He says, look, um, if you don't demand from me what I should be doing on security, well, I ain't going to do it for that long. Well, the industry. Again, we have no choice because everyone posts and plots and specs, and so we've got to be at the top end. So I think until we begin to get this demand for, here's the top 100 things every government and customer should ask for from security. It's not going to drive the base quality. When you start driving the base quality, then you begin to go down to some of the mathematical models, which will give you an
0: indication, not a total indication. Yet we have uh, intrusion leading yeah. to systems becoming unavailable, unreliable, yet we have dependable dependability, vulnerabilities being exploited for security. So there's a deep connection, and still, the standardization is not there. It's not
1: there, and, I, and, I, and again, I'll,
0: I'll be blunt systems
1: go down, systems get hacked. Who really cares? Have you ever seen a chief executive be fired, or a government official be fired for a massive data breach or a big crash of a system for a number of days? Have you seen a CIO go, maybe occasionally? Security officer, maybe occasionally? Have you seen share prices suffer badly through all of this stuff? Have you seen accounts be qualified by the auditors? Have you seen the regulators really hammer people in terms of the, uh, the standard CIA model in terms of confidentiality, integrity and availability? Have you? So we look at this, then if I was doing bad health and safety, if I was doing all kinds of bad things, the regulators would be on, on me like a shot. Citizens would be on me like a shot. I've lost 10,000 records of personal data from bank accounts. Oh, well, these things happen, you know, attack us you know, from somewhere in the world, you know, I hope everything is OK. Do you think it started to a serious loss of life due to uh,
0: a, a breach?
1: Does it have to really take a loss of life for us to take this seriously?
0: <laughs> do, do you think the new law where um, Australian companies have to uh, announce um, if, uh, they've been uh, hacked uh, in a significant
1: undefined uh, On significant? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I'm a fan of mandatory breach reporting. But I say one caveat. If you want people to be honest that they've been breached, they cannot be pilloried or penalized for being honest. And the reason why people don't do breach reporting is because they think they'll be, uh, they'll suffer in some shape or form, whether it be reduction in share price, whether it be pilloried in the press or something. We have to create a model that makes it appropriate for people to report the breaches that are significant in some shape or form. And I think. Hard to define that, but not in a way in essence which makes people say I'm never going to do that again. If we do that, then people will hide their breaches. And it is only by beginning to share knowledge and begin to make boards and vendors and governments and buyers stand up to what we have to do that we will fundamentally move this agenda forward. Focusing on a company or a country is a completely reverse. Working together to drive the quality up for everybody is a way that we will
0: address the issue. John, allow me to present this gift to you as a token of appreciation. Thank you very for much. Very kind of you. Talk and uh, stimulating discussion. My pleasure. Yes. Thank yes. you very so much.